70 years with KBS World Radio, 70 years of global Korea. Throughout the year, we celebrate the 70th anniversary of KBS World Radio with the voices of our listeners from all over the world. Здравствуйте. Меня зовут Ольга. Мы из города Кунгур, Пермский край. Очень рады отправить вам видео. Итак, KBS исполняется 70. Hello, we are Alexandra and Olga. I send greetings to all of you on behalf of my brother Alexander as well, because he has difficulty speaking due to his condition. KBS World Radio is celebrating its 70th anniversary this year. 70 years is not a short time. I think the years added more value to KBS World Radio just like good wine. I first started to tune into KBS World Radio in the late 90s and have been enjoying the channel ever since. Now I can't imagine my life without KBS World Radio. Happy 70th birthday! Seventy years with KBS World Radio, seventy years of global Korea. KBS World Radio brings Korea to you wherever you are. Hello, it's the 2nd of November, Thursday, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won j a n g w o Several hundred foreigners and wounded Palestinians have reportedly left or are leaving Gaza to Egypt via the Rafah crossing after opening for the first time on Wednesday. Five Korean nationals are reported to be among the evacuees. We'll have more details in news briefing shortly. Last week, the Justice Ministry announced plans for a Korean version of Jessica's Law, which would require convicted child sex offenders to live in designated facilities after being released from prison. We'll look closer at this plan for our in-depth today. And coming up for Explore Korea, we'll be discovering a new cultural space with a complicated history. Let's begin Korea 24. What you're hearing now are ambulances arriving at the Rafah crossing on the border between Gaza and Egypt. They were seen transporting wounded Palestinians towards Egypt on Thursday. These are the first people to leave Gaza other than four hostages released by Hamas and another rescued by Israeli forces. The crossing was open for the first time on Wednesday. A Palestinian official on Thursday at the Rafah crossing confirmed the Palestine-Egypt border will be open for foreign uh, passport holders and the wounded. Let's hear what the official had to say. The Egyptian side informed us that the Rafah crossing point will be open for foreign passport holders and the wounded. Today we expect that 81 wounded people will leave Gaza. According to a name list we received from Egypt, around 500 foreign passport holders will leave Gaza. That list of about 600 additional foreign nationals comprised 400 Americans 
as well as people from South Korea, Mexico, Hungary, Croatia, among others. For this and our other major headlines of the day, we have joining us in the studio now Kim Ming-kyung, the Deputy Editor-in-Chief of KBS World's English News Service. Ming-kyung, hello. Hello, Chamo. So South Koreans were on a list of hundreds of foreigners and dual nationals who have been allowed to pass through the Rafah border crossing from Gaza to Egypt. Can you tell us more? Sure. We don't have much news on it yet. But according to foreign media outlets, including Al Jazeera and The New York Times, five South Korean nationals, a South Korean woman in her 40s, her husband of Palestinian ethnicity, and the couple's three children have been put on the list. The family, who all hold South Korean citizenship, have reportedly been residing in Gaza for a long period of time. Last month's Foreign Minister Park Jin had said during a parliamentary inspection of the ministry that the government estimates there are five South Koreans residing in Gaza, all belonging to a single family. Park had said the government will promptly devise safety measures for the evacuation of the South Koreans while keeping a close eye on the situation. Hopefully we'll have more news from the Foreign Ministry. Indeed, we'll keep a close eye on that situation in the days to come. Let's shift now to some domestic news. Kimpo, the city adjacent to Seoul, has been in the headlines for the past few days now. The People Power Party has been pushing to incorporate cities around Seoul into the capital, while the Democratic Party says it's a ploy to win votes ahead of next year's general elections. And Kimpo is at the heart of these discussions. Can you tell us more about this issue? Sure, the PPP says it's pushing to incorporate Kimpo into the capital in a bid to address the congestion on the roads and subways connecting the satellite city and Seoul. The plan is part of the part of the party's mega Seoul vision, with a special committee launched on Thursday to discuss the highly debated proposal under the leadership of five-term lawmaker Cho Gyeong-tae, who has expertise in urban design. Kimpo, which is currently a part of Gyeonggi province, is home to about 490,000 residents and is directly adjacent to western Seoul's Gangseo district. Talk of the incorporation arose as the Gyeonggi provincial government is considering dividing the province into two due to its growing population into northern Gyeonggi and southern Gyeonggi. Amid such discussions, the Kimpo municipal government, led by a PPP mayor, had expressed a preference for becoming a part of Seoul rather than becoming one half of Gyeonggi province. So tell us the DP's response so far. The DP sees the initiative as an attempt by the PPP to bolster voter support ahead of the general elections next year. Uh, They argue that if the PPP really wants to resolve congestion issues between Kimpo and Seoul, the government must first expand Seoul's subway line 5 before pushing for Kimpo's incorporation. It also says that the concept of mega cities should start with the likes of Busan, Ulsan and South Gyeongsang province or the Jeolla region ahead of Seoul to achieve balanced regional development. The process to make the PPP's initiative possible requires several steps, starting with approval in a vote by Kimpo residents before the National Assembly enacts a special law to make it official. Let's turn now to some economic news. Asiana Airlines approved the sale of the company's cargo business to facilitate the merger with the country's top carrier, Korean Air, in the face of antitrust concerns by European Union regulators. Can you explain? Sure. Asian Airlines Board of Directors approved the sale three days after they failed to reach a compromise amid disagreements over the sell-off of the cargo division with a rejection potentially jeopardizing the deal. The latest decision comes amid concerns by the European Commission that Korean Air's takeover of Asiana may restrict competition in the markets for passenger and cargo air transport services between South Korea and the EU. 
Immediately after the board decision, Korean Air submitted formal remedies to the regulator, including Asiana's plan to sell its cargo business. Korean Air hopes to receive EU approval by the end of January, but it also needs approval from antitrust authorities in the U.S. and Japan, so the merger process still has a while to go. Shifting to security news, the South Korean military says it has detected signs that North Korea provided weapons to Russia through the regime's northeastern Rajin port. Can you tell us more? Yes, a military official in Seoul told reporters on Thursday that signs of weapons transfers to North Korea to Russia were detected since mid-2022, but active maritime delivery became more apparent since August, a month prior to Kim Jong-un's visit to Russia. More than 2,000 containers carrying weapons are estimated to have been sent to Russia through Rajinport, with a presumed capacity to accommodate over 200,000 rounds of 122mm artillery shells or over 1 million rounds of 152mm shells. North Korea is also assumed to have supplied T-series tank ammunition, anti-tank guided missiles, rocket launchers, rifles, machine guns and possibly short-range ballistic missiles. Russia in turn may offer technological support for the regime's military satellites, nuclear weapons, fighter jets and air defense systems. The official said Pyongyang is expected to first receive food and fuel supplies to secure stability within the regime and to prepare for the upcoming winter, after which the two sides are likely to discuss Moscow's military technology transfer, support for the modernization of conventional forces and joint training. In other news, nine years after the Sewol ferry sinking disaster, the Supreme Court has acquitted top Coast Guard officials who stood trial for failing to respond appropriately to rescue passengers from that disaster. Can you tell us more about the ruling? Yes, on Thursday, the nine-member bench upheld a lower court acquittal of nine former officials on charges of occupational negligence resulting in death, including former Korea Coast Guard Commissioner General Kim Seok-kyun and Deputy Commissioner Choi Sang-hwan. The top court said there is no misunderstanding of the law or omission of judgment by the lower court with regard to a violation of professional duty to take caution. The former officials were indicted in February 2020 on suspicion of causing 445 casualties by failing to fulfill their initial duty to take cautionary measures during a rescue following the ferry sinking on April 16, 2014. They were found not guilty in both the first and appellate trials, with the court saying there was a lack of evidence to prove that they could predict passenger deaths and that they had not taken preventive steps. And finally, monthly inflation numbers were released today. Can you brief us on the figures? The consumer price index climbed by 3.8% from a year earlier in October, rising by the fastest pace in seven months. That's due to a surge in prices of agricultural products and narrow drops in prices of petroleum products. Prices of farm, livestock and fishery products jumped 7.3% on year in October, with agricultural products in particular seeing prices increase 13.5%. Prices of petroleum products fell 1.3%, but the extent of decline narrowed from 4.9% in September. That's all for our news briefing today. Thank you for those updates. Thank you. Jessica's Law is the informal name of a 2005 Florida law and its respective counterparts in several U.S. states. 
Its objective is to prevent convicted sex offenders who committed terrible crimes against victims under 12 years of age from reoffending after being released from prison. The law includes a mandatory minimum sentence of 25 years in prison, lifetime electronic monitoring, and banning offenders from living near a school or park. The law is named after Jessica Lunsford, a nine-year-old female in Florida who was kidnapped, raped, and murdered in 2005 by John Coey, a previously convicted sex offender. The reason we're talking about this today is that the South Korean government announced that it's seeking to establish its own version of Jessica's law, and this has sparked heated legal and political discussions in the country. To delve into this issue today, we have two law professors and good friends of the show joining us on the line. First, we have Professor Cho Hee Kyung from Hong Kong University with us. Professor Cho, hello. Hello. And we also have Professor Song Se Ryan from Kyung University standing by as well. Professor Song, hello. Hello. So last week on October 24th, the Justice Ministry announced its plans to submit a bill which will deprive convicted child sex offenders of their right to choose where to live once their prison term ends. The goal is to keep their locations of residence significantly far away from places where children frequent, such as kindergartens, schools, and daycare centers. Professor Cho, let me start with you and your assessment of this. New plan by the government. Can you tell us what you think of it, and do you think this will, uh, this Korean adaptation of Jessica's law, will be an effective way to reduce the recidivism of child sex offenders? So, as far as I could understand, the proposed bill doesn't actually mandate a minimum sentence for a, a re-offence by the same offender. Who's been convicted previously of sex crime against a child? It simply mandates uh, someone who has been convicted of sex crime against children under 13 or who's been sentenced to more than 10 years in prison after having been con- convicted of sex offences more than three times to. Essentially, designate them to certain residential facilities, so so that they are not free to choose where they may live. And as of the end of last year, there were some 325 individuals who may be potentially subject to this new law. But if you actually think about the nature of sex offences and the behaviour of sex offenders. I really question how effective this is going to be in reducing recidivism of sex offences against children, uh, and also t- to essentially treat people who, um, you know, are repeat pedophile offenders. Hmm. Why are, are you? Why do you think it might not be effective? Well, because. Most sex offenders a do not reoffend, and b they are not some strangers who are loitering around schools and parks waiting to pounce on victims. They are usually relatives or acquaintances, people who are known to the child victim. And also, uh, more recently, 
if uh, the offender is a stranger, they once again are not waiting to meet children in the physical world, in physical space. They usually groom uh, children online, so meeting them on in chat rooms and and such. Mm. Uh, and then that leads then onto uh, a physical meeting uh, and you know non consensual uh, sex or sexual offence against children. So I think the law is somewhat illogical and somewhat misguided, and I do highly question the potential effectiveness against uh, child sex offenders. Right. Online grooming can, of course, happen anywhere. It doesn't matter uh, where their residence uh, would be. Uh, Professor Tsong, uh, what's your take on the government's plan? Well, I completely agree with uh, the Professor Cho, but uh, fundamentally, I, th- I think that there, there is a general increase in the sexual offence, uh, partly because we have uh, become, as a society, more sensitive to um, sex-related crimes uh, that uh, uh, may or may not involve the digital, digital means. Uh, we have enacted uh, several laws or, or revised some laws to include the SNS-related uh, digital uh, crimes. So uh, I think it's in the, the um, situation where we are seeing more of those offenses. And because of uh, a couple of uh, or several high-profile cases, the society is clamoring for, I think, the uh, to be tough on those kind of crimes. So uh, I think the, this kind of law uh, reflects the direction uh, of the society, it, it doesn't it it doesn't uh, hurt that the current administration is conservative in nature, and they are usually uh, pretty tough on crime. So, uh, but I I do think that some sort of tougher measure is required. But I I do question that whether this is the best way to go. Um, uh, we will be talking about this, but. Um, uh, when they serve the sentence, uh, they sort of quote-unquote uh, pay the debt to the society and uh, reincarcerate them or uh, expand the, the definition of, you know, probation to an umpteenth degree, that does run into uh, constitutional issues, I think. So uh, I, I think the general direction is there, but uh, I, I don't know if they have considered the the ap- approach in a very strategic and and very uh, customized way, uh, incarceration is one thing, but um, there, there there's a counseling, there's a medical means, and there's a there's a whole slew of uh, measures that uh, can be uh, introduced to fit the individual cases. Some some offenders are medically sick, uh, and that's their uh, their source of uh, criminality, but others uh, 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 not to that degree. So we can, we cannot just say that this is a one size fits all uh, the measure to counter all the sex crimes. Right, Professor Cho. This also comes in light of uh, several high profile cases, as Professor Song uh, mentioned. Uh, 
especially uh, including the one with uh, Cho Doo-sun, who raped uh, an eight-year-old girl in 2008. He served 12 years in prison but was then released in 2020. And he went back to his old home, less than a kilometre away from the victim's house. And while, Professor Choi, you said earlier that uh, it's not usual that these offences happen where strangers are taken off the street, but this was a case where that was indeed uh, the case. So that's why there has been such vociferous calls from the public uh, over concerns over Cho and him moving back to uh, this area where he's near the victim's uh, old home. So it does happen. Indeed, yes, it does. I'm not saying that it doesn't, but I'm saying that we we shouldn't be making laws in a knee-jerk reaction to one specific case. Uh, You know, whenever there is a shark attack, uh, of the coast and a person you know, dies from it or you know, has an arm or a leg taken, that makes huge news and it makes many people afraid to go into the water. But when you look at how many shark attacks actually occur in a year, you, know, you are much more likely to be run over by a bus uh, and be killed in that way rather than uh, be uh, you know, uh, bitten by a shark. And in a similar way, many thousands of more victims uh, uh, suffer as a result Mm. of offences committed by acquaintances and relatives. Uh, Chodusun was a horrible case, but there's an expression that bad cases make bad law. And if we are simply responding to one particular case that uh, is uh, that has only very low likelihood of mm. recurring then we'll be constantly making very bad laws and it's not going to help reduce actual crimes uh, against children right. I just wanted to point out also that you know um, professor song mentioned that sex offenses are on the increase but I would question the premise of that because uh, sex offences have been reported much more, but, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the, the actual number of cases are on the increase. In the past, the victims were either too ashamed or shamed into not reporting it, um, hushing it up, even by their own parents and relatives. Uh, but nowadays, also, there used to be very little evidence that they could use to accuse the offender. Right. But nowadays, there is a lot more evidence, digital and otherwise, right. and so I think more reporting. So. Going back to the Jessica's law, uh, Professor Song, uh, one of the reasons you mentioned earlier uh, that has been a concern is constitutionality. Uh, some are against the legislation of a Korean version of the law as it's uh, possible that it violates the constitutional right to freely choose where someone lives and the right to move at will as well. Uh, Professor Song, what's your take on this argument? What, what you mentioned is a, a serious um, uh, offence to the, the constitution of travel and association. Uh, but there, there's also uh, what is called a chemical castration. Uh, if they are forced to take the, uh, the, the, the medicine uh, or the injection, that reduces their sexual libido. Uh, I, I think it's also uh, seriously hurt their uh, the right to uh, physical integrity. 
Now, uh, back to the travel and the association. Um, it, it's one thing to uh, order them to be to be uh, to keep a certain distance from where children's are, like parks and schools. But if they house them in a a, a government built or a government uh, uh, monitored house, uh, it's tantamount to reincarceration. They already finished their sentences. And uh, they are housed in a, a another institution that is not very different from a monitoring and uh, point of view, and uh, a lot of cases they will be away from their family. So uh, I think there is a, a constitutional issue. Now, one way around that would be to expand the notion of probation uh, in a very uh, extreme degree, and you know, I don't. I don't think that's a, the, the good way to go. Uh, even in United States and other countries, uh, these are only applied to a probation case, uh, parole cases, where they have not really finished the sentence, but in lieu of further incarceration, uh, they are uh, taking uh, this route. And also cons uh, consent basis as well when it comes to uh, measures like uh, chemical castration. Hmm. So uh, I, I think that the only, same logics apply in Korean cases. Now, the minister explained that, well, in a Korean situation, that we're extremely uh, dense in the population, so this is the only way to go. But uh, I, I don't think that justifies the the uh, serious violation to the constitutional rights. Professor Shaw, what do you make of the constitutional concerns with a potential uh, Korean Jessica's law? I am also in agreement with the concerns raised by Professor Song here. It's essentially reintroducing the protective custody system that we used to have, which was already declared unconstitutional by the Constitutional Court uh, not, not that long ago. Um, the thing is, we don't even uh, you know, impose lengthy sentences on uh, these types of sex offenders who commit violent sex crimes against children. Cho uh, Dusun case is uh, you know, uh, completely uh, in point. It's possibly the apex of this kind of uh, really bad cases. And previously, the law only allowed maximum sentence of you know, um, X number of years. And he was actually given that, uh, that, that sentence. And there were lots of um, you know, deductions made because he was you know, uh, considered incompetent uh, at the time because of drunkenness, et cetera, et cetera. But even now, for example, just recently, there was a, a, a conviction of um, uh, a male in his early 30s who essentially, um, you know, had sex with a 12-year-old child wh whom he groomed online. Uh, obviously, it was non-consensual sex, but he was only given two years sentence. Uh, if we, if a uh, Korean version of Jessica's law introduced a much longer mandatory minimum sentence, the way that the U.S. Uh, 
or at least the Floridan version does, mm. and was at least consistent in terms of uh, how we actually punish the sex offenders, then uh, I might reconsider the merits of the law. But it doesn't actually, you know, uh, reform or even attempt to reform the existing uh, system of punishment regarding uh, child sex offences. And instead, it's simply, uh, you know, saying, well, we're going to uh, re-incarcerate them in some kind of residential facility, which really mm. violates their basic constitutional rights. Professor Song, how do you think the political dynamics plays into this issue as well? Because as we said, uh, there have been growing public concerns over these sorts of crimes and uh, growing calls by the public uh, related to incidents like Cho Du-sun and his release. Uh, how do you think that is affecting the political motivation behind this, uh, pushing this law through? Well, whenever we think about the political climate, uh, we have to think about the general election coming up next year. So I, I think the opposition party is in a quandary. One, uh, they, they, they cannot oppose the, the measure, not the way it is right now, but uh, after a debate is done, uh, they have to be in agreement probably uh, with what the, the society is demanding, uh, tougher measures against these kind of crimes. But at the same time, if this one becomes a popular uh, measure, probably it will help the, the ruling party's chance of uh, recovering from uh, their setbacks uh, uh, in, in preparation for the next general election. So uh, I, I think that the, there is a, 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 a motivation to work together on this issue, but how soon this will go and how noisy it will be because of the, the what we've been talking about, the constitutional challenges and how uh, well uh, drafted this uh, measure is. So I, I, I see that it's going to be a little bit uh, rough and tough uh, uh, going forward. But the opposition party probably cannot flat out say that this is a bad measure and turn it, uh, shoot it down. Professor Chul, we only have a minute, but do you think we will see a Korean version of Jessica's law in some form or another? I'm just concerned that the Ministry of Justice's um, political, sorry, legislative agenda is essentially being exploited for political uh, means to further the prospects of the Conservative Party in the next year's general election. So this proposed uh, version, Korean version of Jessica's law, I see as um, a part and parcel of the series of measures that have been recently introduced or talked about by the Ministry of Justice, including uh, the um, life sentence without parole uh, and also the potential uh, recommencing of actual execution of death penalty uh, seen by you know, the, the visit uh, by the justice minister to um, the facility where the, 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 um, those uh, measures available and also gathering of all the, 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 um, the offenders who've been sentenced to death into one uh, facility, etc., and so I'm concerned that rather than really looking at how to reduce 
child sex offense crimes, uh, they are looking more at these kind of populistic measures designed to appeal to conservative voters. We'll have to wrap it up there. We've been speaking to Professor Song Seryeon and Professor Cho Hee-kyung. Thank you both for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index gained 41.56 points, or 1.81% on Thursday, to close at 2,343.12. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also jumped, climbing 33.61 points, or 4.55%, to close at 772.84. On the foreign exchange, the local currency strengthened 14.41 against the U.S. dollar, closing the day at 1,342.91. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. We continue on now to Korea Trending. This is our daily segment where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that today, we have with us in the studio now, news editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. It's good to see you again, jang Yes. Let's get into the first story. What do you have for us? Uh, there's this growing issue in Seoul, and that is a number of wild boars. Uh, sightings of these animals have increased, and the number of wild boars caught by the month of September was 1.5 times the figure recorded in the same period last year. This is according to the Seoul Metropolitan Government on Thursday. Right, this does sound concerning. How many instances are we talking about? Well, we're talking about big numbers. 288 were caught this year between January and September. Quite a huge spike compared to 164 last year during that same period of time. This is the first time the figures went above 200 and verging on 300 levels. Uh, After it was staying in the 100 ranges and way below that for several years. Okay, so what's going on? Why are we seeing so many more wild boars? Well, for one, nature. Uh, Wild boars have virtually no predators here in Seoul. We don't have bears, wolves, or panthers yet. (laughs) (laughs) So another reason is the increase of mountain goers, with hiking becoming a very popular outdoor activity in the city. It always has been, and it's becoming even more popular. You see ads Mm. for the uh, gears or uh, clothing related to hiking all the time in Korea. Definitely. So naturally, more hikers equals more sightings and reports of wild boars. And Korea has extremely strict gun regulations as well, so you don't see a lot of hunting going on. I see, of course, hunting uh, hunting them down is not an ideal option. Uh, but yes, uh, they are proliferating. And of course, because more people are going outdoors, uh, they are spotting them more as well. How are authorities responding then? Has Seoul announced measures to try and keep the boars at bay? Well, the government plans to set up traps and expand fences. The 13.5-kilometer-long fence that covers six autonomous regions will be expanded to 16 kilometers to cover two more regions. And the number of traps set up in four mountains will also be expanded all the way to 138. Experts warn that between November and January and between April and June are the periods when wild boars are especially aggressive, as this is when they are rearing their newborns. So hikers should avoid confronting them at all costs during these periods. But I think that is the important point of the story today, that hikers should be aware that there is this risk of wild boars and that they are dangerous, especially at this time of year. So people should be extra careful and avoid them if they can. Okay, let's uh, move on to our second story. What do you have for us? 
Lee Yi-in-su, the adopted son of South Korea's first president, Lee Seung-man, passed away on Wednesday. He was 92 years old. According to various sources, including the Memorial Association for Founding President Lee Seung-man, or Seung-man Lee, on Wednesday evening, the junior Lee passed away at Seoul National University Hospital in Jongno District of old age. He is survived by his wife, Chu Hye-ja, and two sons. Right, so he was the adopted son of Lee Seung-man, or Seung-min Ri, as uh, many people in the West might know the name under. Uh, can you tell us about uh, the son for our listeners who may not be familiar with his story? He was adopted just a year after the 1960 pro-democracy civil uprising that occurred during his father's rule. Hundreds of thousands, mostly students, took to the streets nationwide in protest of election fraud and government corruption, and authorities suppressed demonstrations through force. Uh, but he was eventually forced out of office on April 26, 1960. Uh, the son, the adopted son, Lee Insu, majored in business and graduated from Korea University and further his studies, attaining his PhD in political science at NYU. After serving as a professor at Myungju University's College of Law, in the early 90s, he devoted his life to serving the Memorial Association for founding President Lee Seung man from 1996. But what was significant was that while serving as a member of that association, he was determined to apologize to the victims of the April 19th revolution and their families in order to try and seek redemption for his father. It wasn't an easy process because in 2011, when he planned to visit the April 19th National Cemetery in Seoul to issue an apology, he was blocked by the families of those who died in the uprising. And they shouted at Eve for offering insincere apologies. Uh, this September, he offered condolences to the victims and their bereaved families while visiting a monument bearing the portraits and names of those who were killed in the pro-democracy revolution at the April 19th National Cemetery. Right, so even until the last months of his life, he tried to offer condolences. So that was Yi Su, the son of Yi Seung-man, who passed away on Wednesday. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending? Actress Kim Yasu has been the mainstay among MCs or hosts of the Blue Dragon Film Awards or Cheongnyong Film Awards. After three decades of being an inseparable part of the prestigious ceremony, she announced she is stepping down from that role. Wow, so she's been hosting <laughs> these awards for 30 years. That's incredible, incredible longevity. It just shows how long she's maintained such a successful career as well. Yes, uh, for 30 years, she has played the role of host for the award ceremony from the 14th edition in 1993, as she has been hosting nonstop every year. According to her agency, Hudu and New Entertainment on Thursday, the actress made it official. The 44th Cheongnyong Film Awards to be held on the 24th of this month will be her final emceeing run for the event. No details are given about the reasons for reaching this decision other than 30-30 being a nice round number to take a graceful exit from that role. Well, I think 30 years is definitely long <laughs> enough uh, service uh, for the awards. Uh, as well as being host, she herself has been the recipient of prizes at the awards as well, of course. Right. Kim has won Best Actress three times, 1993 and 95-2006, setting a record as the actress who has earned the top honor for the most number of times. Not only that, another record she holds is being the youngest to win Best Actress at age 23. For nearly three decades, that record remains unbroken. As a presenter, she was ahead of her time with the stunning outfits and once behind the mic, keeping it fun and casual, breaking out of the rigid formalities of such ceremonies that Koreans were used to in the 90s, which was something that was very difficult because it would stir a lot of controversies or poke bears or rattle the hornet's nest mm. to a certain degree. And the 44th Cheongnyong Film Awards will be held on November 24th at KBS Hall in Yeoido and will be broadcast live on KBS. 
Well, it's going to be strange not to see her on that stage next year, but it seems uh, a fitting time as any to bow out now, I guess, and I'm sure she'll get a wonderful send-off this year as well. That's why we'll wrap it up for today's Career Trending. Thank you for those stories, Daniel, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for having me. Time now for Explore Korea, our weekly segment where we discover the cultural, historical and travel highlights the nation has to offer. And we do that with our panel of special contributors we call Explorers. And this week, we have another new explorer with us today. We have in the studio with me now Shin Minhee, a reporter with the Korea Jungang Daily covering the Culture Desk. Minnie, hello and welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. Yes, it's great to have you with us. Uh, I understand you've been covering the cultural desk, uh, cultural stories for quite some time now. So we're excited to see what you'll bring uh, for this little corner of ours. So let's get started. What are we talking about today? Um, Today I want to talk about a special historical building that used to have a notorious reputation but now it's been given a fresh breath of life as a place of enjoyment and happiness. I actually visited this place last month, and even though I was only there for about half a day, I still remember it quite vividly, and I wanted to introduce it to everyone. Mm. It's called Heredium, and it's located in the city of Taejeon. To give more information about what Heredium is, it's a cultural complex taking Mm. the form of a brick building, which holds art exhibitions and classical music concerts. It made its official opening last month. Right, okay. So it's a new cultural space then, only opened in September then. Right. Okay, and this is all the way down in Daejeon. Right. Okay. Uh, It's interesting to note that the building used to be the Oriental Development Company's Daejeon branch. Mm -hmm. And to give further explanation on what this company is, it was a company launched by the Japanese government during Japan's colonial rule in 1910 to 1945. And it monopolized and exploited the Korean economy. Uh, One example would be investing in electricity and railroads to exploit mines. Right, so So that's what you meant earlier when you said it had a notorious reputation. Right, it did. So it initially had nine branches across the country, but now there's only three three of the buildings that remain to this day, and they're in Busan, Mokpo, and Daejeon. Now, the Busan and Mokpo branches have been converted into the annexes of each city's modern and contemporary history museum. Mm. And as for the Daejeon branch, after Korea's liberation in 1945, it was used as a postal and telegraph service and a telephone bureau until it was sold to the private sector in 1984. Uh, Since then, it was used commercially until it was acquired by the energy supplier CN City Energy last year. Right, and they're the ones who have decided to make this into an art space then. You're right. saying, okay. Mm-hmm. So it's a building that's had quite a lot of interesting history, as you said. I've seen uh, pictures of it, and it does stand out. It's a brick building, as you said. There's a lot of, I feel, like a European influence in the architecture as well. I would say perhaps not a classical look, but it's certainly striking. And it's interesting that it has now been turned into this uh, cultural space. So can you tell us more what's being held there at the moment? What exhibition is uh, currently on show at the moment? 
There's one exhibition. It's called Herbst. It's, it means fall in German, and it's the solo exhibition for Anselm Kiefer, who is a 78-year-old German painter and sculptor. It's his first solo show for an art museum in Korea, mm. but he has um, whole held exhibitions at galleries like Tadeusz Ropak okay. before. And when I visited Heredium, I learned that there was a deeper meaning behind Kiefer's exhibit at Heredium because the two are very much alike. Mm. And uh, I should mention that uh, Heredium in Latin is hereditary estate, and it's meant to represent a new beginning for the building. But Kiefer's work is also based on motives of renewal. Okay, I was curious about that name as well, actually, Heredium. That was a a very unique-sounding name. Right. For the building. Mm-hmm. We're saying it's about renewal. Yes. But before we get into that, though, uh, one similarity they have is that they both have backgrounds in ruins. Kiefer uh, is known to referring to themes on German history, especially the aftermath of the Holocaust. Mm. Since he was born in 1945 during World War II, he grew up experiencing the devastation of the war, and he's been incorporating related themes and experiences into his artworks. And the same goes for the Oriental Development Company. It sort of lost its identity after becoming defunct, and it was on the verge of staying as an old shabby brick house. So you could say that uh, that's why they can be considered similar. Mm, Interesting connections there, then, that could perhaps uh, resonate with audiences here as well with this building and the artist's work itself. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about Kiefer? What is he actually known for? So uh, I would say this with most artworks, but you actually have to see his works in person before you uh, really want to comprehend what he's known for. Mm. Uh, He is one of the most celebrated contemporary artists out there, and he's exhibited his pieces at the Venice Biennale, the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York, the Royal Academy of Arts in London, the Centre Pompidou in Paris, and all of these are world-renowned events or venues. Mm, Of course. Uh, But to explain to our audience who haven't seen his artworks, I would summarize them to be paintings that appear like sculptures. Uh, And what I mean by this is they are your usual paintings on the canvas, Mm. but he uses special techniques and materials that give them more dimension. Uh, The technique he uses is called impasto, which is uh, layering paint or pigment so thickly that it stands out from the canvas Mm. or a surface. And he attaches straw, dead leaves, tree branches, ash, or dirt directly onto the canvas as well. And these attribute to giving impressions of somberness or and destruction. Uh, so simply put, it's like seeing an entire fall scenery on a canvas. Right. So while it may be on a canvas, it's actually a three-dimensional work, you're right. saying. Interesting. It okay. Is. So in material especially... Like the straw and dead leaves I just mentioned have have always been an important important part of his work, especially metal, because as Kiefer puts it, this particular element is able to carry all the weight of human history. Mm. Uh, but back to the Heredium ex- exhibit, there are eighteen works on view right now. Seventeen are, of them are new paintings, and there is one installation of a mud brick ruins, mm. and they were inspired by the poetry of an Australian poet named Rainer Maria. Mil- Rilke? Austrian poet. Austrian I, I, poet, yes. Yes, I think, but I believe yes. Yes, uh, which are about celebrating the transformation of life. Mm. 
the hues of Kiefer's paintings are mainly brownish, but in some of them, they were highlighted to, with uh, golden textures, and they were inspired by Kiefer's visit to Hyde Park in London 15 years ago. Mm. Uh, at the time, it is said that he marveled at how the uh, explosion of colors on an autumn day were, quote, overwhelming of such <laughs> intensity that I fetched a camera from the hotel and went to work, unquote. Mm. So even though his works, they do allude to the traumas of the war, there is a sen certain sense of hope behind them. And after all, I guess most would agree that to every ending is another beginning. And I think this is exactly what Kiefer was uh, aiming for. Well, I mean, if he thinks Hyde Park is an explosion of colour in the fall, uh, he needs to come to Korea <laughs> at this time of year as well, I would say, because the fall foliage here is uh, pretty amazing as well, especially in the countryside. Mm -hmm. but yes, going back to the art, as you said, you know, art, it's a visual medium, so it can be hard to explain on radio, but I think you explained it very well, and thank you for that. But for any listeners who are curious, we will have photos on our Instagram page as well, KBS underscore Korea 24, so our listeners can see for themselves there as well. I know you wanted to talk a little bit more about the Heridium building itself and what else that you can find there, right? Right, so uh, there's some really interesting things about the Heredium building. Is that so? Even though the building has been given a new purpose and it's been renovated, there are still many parts of the building that were preserved in their original form. And so, it, in a way, it felt like it wasn't just getting rid of the past entirely, it was still acknowledging and accepting it, but also and allowing the past and the present to coexist. Mm. So for me, it was kind of like a treasure hunt to search for what is still left. So, and I had fun searching for them as well. Uh, I want to mention the bricks on the outside of the buildings first. Mm -hmm. uh, the quality of the bricks aren't really consistent. There are uh, the colors are the are the red or the red are the same red, mm. but they are a mix of obviously new ones and old ones. And the old ones are about 100 years old. Right, so you can see for yourself that yes. they're different. Okay, even though they're the same colour. Interesting. Yes. Uh, the director of Heredium, Ham Sonje, told us that the ratio of the new and old bricks is about half and half. So there, oh, that's one thing to look out for. Mm. And another thing is the concrete ceiling, which is also a century old. And it's been kept in its original state as well. And Director Ham also told us at the time that there have been no signs of any leakages because the building was always sturdy in the first place. Wow, that's pretty impressive. Uh -huh. And mm. the vertically long wooden windows are still available to see. But you'll have to uh, go outside in the terrace and look at them from the outside because they, are, they were partially damaged damaged mm. so uh, inside heredium they've been plastered onto to become walls right. so they're only partly visible from outside i see and finally you can also get a glimpse of the old staircases uh, although they're not used now they are covered by concrete because when the building became heredium the floor became elevated during the renovation but still you can still see parts of the stairs uh, through the glass floor Right, so they've taken quite a bit of effort to try and preserve what they can mm -hmm. uh, while still updating it to uh, a more modern space as well. Right. That sounds, that sounds incredible. Uh, now, finally, I see in our notes today that you have given a rating for the site. It's not something we usually do, but I think <laughs> it's interesting, and I guess why not? Uh, so how would you rate the Heredium? I would rate it four out of five stars. Mm -hmm. I think it's 
definitely worth visiting because there's such a great story behind it. Right. Uh, Kiefer is also considered a very important figure in contemporary art. So if you're interested in art, uh, you should definitely check out Kiefer's works. But even learning what the Herodian building is, like where it came from and how it came to be, itself is extremely educational. And I think it's as meaningful as actually visiting a history museum. Mm. Uh, right now, they're doing the Kiefer exhibition, and it continues until January 31st next year. But they, they're going to have more exhibitions in the future. And recently, they also had a recital alongside Kiefer's artworks at mm. the Heredian building. So I heard that that was also very beautiful. Uh, and the location is quite close to Seoul, too. It's only an hour away by KTX from Seoul Station. So there's really no pressure of traveling too far. Mm. And Heredian also has great coffee at their cafe. So. <laughs> <laughs> so all in all, I would very highly recommend. Indeed, it does sound like a great space to check out. Okay, so that was Heredium in Daejeon. And that is where we're going to leave it for Explore Korea this week. Uh, Minhee, it's been great to have you with us today. Thank you for that recommendation. And we'll hopefully speak to you again soon. Thank you for having me. This is a story of a man named Cho Soo Lee. I am director Julie Ha. And I am director Eugene Yi of the film Free Chal Su Lee. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. Come now to Morning Edition Preview, our closing segment, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have joining us in the studio now our staff editor, Richard Larkin. Richard, hello. It's great to see you. Hello. Good to be here. Okay. So what's the first article that you have for us today? Well, in Seoul, there is a public bike sharing system called Tarangi. It can be pretty useful as there are locations all over the city and it is pretty cheap. I actually use it when I go home from work sometimes. However, hmm. there can be some difficulties when using the app if you're a foreigner. But from Friday, so that's tomorrow, it looks like it's going to become a lot easier. That's because an English chatbot service will be made available on the app you use to rent the bikes. Before, if people needed assistance with anything, like from purchasing a voucher to technical issues, they would need to use the chatbot that was only in Korean. I thought it would be of interest to some of our listeners, and that's why I chose Lee Jung-ju's article in the national section of the Korea Herald. Yes, uh, of course, whole residents will use this as bike service, but mm -hmm. I'm sure a lot of tourists would have looked to use this service as well. So right. it would have been a shame that the fact there wasn't uh, English help available when using uh, this service. Sure. So this sounds definitely like a, a positive change for uh, foreigners and for tourists who want to use these uh, bikes. Mm. Yeah, um, this English chatbot Pan in particular comes as the number of foreigners who use the app sharply rose over the past few years. In 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic, around 27,000 foreign nationals used the service. As of September this year, that number has nearly doubled. So it makes sense why they have decided to introduce the English chatbot now. But that's not all. The Seoul Metropolitan Government also plans to add a direct hotline service that will connect them to the customer service centre via the 120 Dasan call centre. Mm. For our listeners who may not know what that is, it is an interpretation service that uses three-way interpretation calls. It's also very useful. Interesting. Uh, we mentioned that an English chatbot service will be introduced, but yes. uh, 
what will be a concern for some is that not all foreign nationals are English speakers, right. of course. Could there be chatbots in languages and other languages in the future? Well, the city is working on it. It plans to add Chinese and Japanese services, but that is still in development, so I'm not sure when that will be rolled out. Sure, but for now, at least an English service uh, will be available. Yes. Uh, it's very useful, I think, that they will have this service available, at least even if it's not human to human, at least mm. with this AI service, hopefully uh, it'll be able to help some people in some uh, difficult situations. Definitely, yes. Okay, let's move on to our next story. What do you have for us? This story also relates to the Seoul Metropolitan Government. According to Zheng Daian's article in the People section of the Korea Times, the city jointly held the Seoul Virtual Autonomous Driving Challenge with the Korea Transportation Safety Authority and various technology companies. This is the first ever competition and it's for college and graduate students. And the aim is to foster the advancement of future technology in the capital city. Interesting. Okay. So what do participants have to do during this challenge? Well, there are multiple missions they need to complete and whoever completed them fastest was named the winner. It was all done virtually. Uh, missions included finding the shortest routes for the autonomous vehicle to travel, changing lanes, avoiding illegal parking and more. <laughs> A total of 24 teams competed, but only four were named the winners. Okay, and who won? So first place was the Phoenix team from Chungbuk National University. Then there was the Vialab team from Kukmin University. The AMSL team from Gatchen University came third. And the All Right team from Yungnam <laughs> University came fourth. The article mentions that the teams will receive preferential consideration in hiring process at Naval Lab. So the wins might have kick-started their careers. Right, so the competition was not only to help foster the advancement of future technology, mm. but also for these companies to secure some of the best talent <laughs> as well, it seems. Very good opportunity. It's a win-win, I guess. <laughs> yes. Uh, but yes, an interesting competition uh, nonetheless. We'll wrap it up there for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that's where we wrap up our show as well. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back the same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon jang and thank you, as always, for listening as well. Goodbye. Don't even think about checking that message or texting back. Did you know it only takes three seconds after a driver's attention has been diverted from the road for a crash to occur? Texting while driving is six times more likely to cause an accident than driving under the influence of alcohol. Sending or reading a text message causes drivers, on average, to take their eyes off the road for five seconds. When driving at 80 kilometers per hour, that means that drivers travel approximately the length of a football field with their eyes closed. At KBS World Radio, we value our listeners' safety and well-being. If you're listening to our programs while driving via your mobile device, please hit play before you set off on your journey. If you receive a message or a call while driving, either use a hands-free Bluetooth device to respond or wait until you've arrived at your destination. You're not just putting your life at risk. Distracted driving accounts for approximately 25% of all motor vehicle crash fatalities. Arrive alive.
KBS World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-ho helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with global audiobook Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in!